Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swatha Das. And I'm Isabella Kwai from the New York Times, filling in for Shami. That's right. We've had one hell of a week for democracies across the world, with the Australian election coming to a surprising conclusion, as well as Theresa May resigning this morning after a crushing defeat, and India's incumbent Prime Minister Narendra Modi being re-elected in a landslide election. Uh, And let's not forget the most important election of all, the new king of the Iron Thrones being announced in the Game of Thrones finale. (laughs) Oh my god. Is all I have to say. Yeah, I I wish I understood the um, Game of Thrones references. It's probably better you don't. (laughs) I'm with you. Uh, So it's National Reconciliation Week for Monday, uh, a week for us to reflect on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. So first up on the show today, we have Hela Ibrahim, the founder and editorial director for DJED Press to discuss Indigenous and people of colour writers and their statistical contributions to Australia's arts and cultural scene. And after that, we're going to be speaking to Rene Drury, a human rights campaigner at GetUp, about the Coalition's plan to abolish the Medivac bill. We'll be discussing all that later on in the show, but as always, we want to hear from you guys. You know, tell us, what did you think of the elections? Were they surprising? Uh, Did you expect it? We want to hear from you. Text in 0409-945-945. That's 0409-945-945. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. How many articles by Indigenous and people of colour writers have you read this year? How many have you read in the last five years? The question of whether diversity is adequately supported within the Australian publishing industry, particularly as it relates to First Nations and people of colour writers, remains largely unanswered. The lack of diverse publications has been increasingly highlighted and internationally challenged in recent years. But without any numbers to rely on, systematic change will be difficult. Hella Ibrahim, the founder and editorial director for DJED Press, which is participating in a project that seeks to find out how many First Nation writers and writers of colour were published in 2018. Uh, and it's a harder job than you might think. Hi there, Hella. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you? Yeah, good. So tell us about your role at DJED Press. What's the uh, purpose of the publication and, and how did it come uh, about? Mm. It's actually pronounced Jed. I really should um I really should have reconsidered what I named it because almost everybody calls it DJ. Um that being said. <laughs> um so I it came about I put it together a couple of years ago just because um as you were saying, there is um an increasing call uh for better representation of people of colour, of writers of colour, of editors of colour, of you know, a more diverse workforce. Um and my role there is, I mean, I, I, I'm self-titled the editorial director, but I basically mm-hmm. run it. Um, I do have um, a bit of a team with me, but it is mostly I just do whatever needs to get done, including editing, including publishing to you know, and commissioning and all of that. So tell us a bit more about the initiative you're driving. Mm. Um, so the First Nations and Pock Riders Count, um, we're basically... It's looking at First Nations and First Nations writers and other people of colour who were published in 2018, 
Um, so we're basically, for all that we talk a lot about the lack of diversity in publishing, because I, I do believe it is an observable phenomenon, um, we, there's no hard statistical evidence to back that up. Um, so about, uh, I want to say a year and a half ago, um, Dr. Natalie Conyu, um, who's a writer and academic over at um, Victoria University, um, you know, got a group of us together and said, let's, let's research this. Um, and so from there, we've been working towards um, putting it together to kind of, uh, to be able to, yeah, to, to, to be able to have some kind of hard evidence. <clears throat> so when we're, so when we're, you know, applying for grants or when we're just talking in general um, and people are like, well, I don't think there's lack of diversity, we can say, actually, we can show you empirically that there is. Um, would you like to say that we're going into this um, with the, with the idea of, you know, that's 100% sure that's what we'll find. I mean, I'm super optimistic that we'll do this research and find that we're actually all all equal and it's all great and, mm. you know, it's what a beautiful landscape. <laughs> but I'm optimistic, but we'll see what the results actually say. Right, right. So mm. do you think Australia has a problem then with Indigenous and ethnic diversity in the arts? Oh, um, yes, I absolutely do, but... To be honest, I, I think Australia has a problem with um, Indigenous and people of colour uh, with diversity in general. I don't think it's limited to the arts, really. Um, look at the look at the election. Really, look no further than our most recent election. Um, but you can also all the discussions that happen around um, so-called Australia Day um, are evidence enough that it's it's a it's a much wider issue than the arts. Um, look at the incarceration rates of. Um, specifically Aboriginal people, they, you know, um, 100% of the um, Aboriginal, of the youth incarcerated in Darwin are Aboriginal. So I, I think Australia has a problem with diversity in general, really. Um, but it is, I think it is clear in the arts. And we are, we are making strides. I think, I think it's gotten a lot better in the last few years. Um, certainly in Melbourne, anyway, um, where I live. I can't speak for other states. Um, but it's not, we're not there yet. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swatha and Isabella. We're speaking to Hella Ibrahim from DJED Press. Did I get that right? Jed, actually, just don't pronounce the D. Okay, okay. Jed Press mm-hmm. about a project aiming to find out how many First Nations writers and writers of color were published in 2018. So, Hella, tell us, what do you think are some of the reasons behind the disparity um, with mm-hmm. Indigenous writers? Um, I can't speak for Indigenous writers. I'm not Indigenous myself, um, so I, I probably should have made that clearer at the, from the get-go. I am um, a North African Arab, um, so I can, you know, like, even then, though, I can't really speak for everybody, but I just wanted to be clear that I'm not Indigenous. But um, I do... I the reasons for the disparity are wide and varied, right? We can't really pinpoint one single issue or one single thing and say this is the reason. So you've got, apart from... Um, Australia is a colonized country, um, and this, you know, everything here was built on stolen land. So fundamentally, there's an issue there. So that's a root cause of um, disparity. Um, there's also, you know, structural racism, barriers to access. There's class issues. So, um, uh, you know, who's who's able to access writing courses? Who's able to um, network in spaces where publishers and um, other writers might be able to support your work. Um, who uh, money is a huge is a huge thing. So the arts is criminally underfunded, um, and so you tend to find a lot of the people working in the arts or working to, or working as writers 
um, are people who come from a more privileged background, and that's across that's across culture. That's not even um, that's not specific to people of color. Although I do think it's more easily observed in people with people of color. Um, so, and a lot of a lot of the work in in that gets done in the arts is either underpaid or not paid. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, you know, people people who have money, people who come from a certain privilege, are able to more are more easily able to go do underpaid internships and go do unpaid work to be able to build up their resume. So that's that's part of it, I think, as well as just generally racism. Right. So, you know, it seems like other Western countries like the US and the UK are tracking diversity in the publishing industry. Is there a reason that Australia is lagging behind? Is there something, you know, you mentioned um, the election recently. Is there something, you know, about this country and what's happening here that makes us, uh, I guess, different? Hmm. Um, God, it, I don't know if there's something that makes us different. Um, God knows, I mean, look at... at Look at who's running the U.S. at the moment. Really, um, mm. although we're not too far behind in that in that aspect. Um, you know, I genuinely don't know. I don't know what the difference is, or I do think I do think the U.S. and the U.K. are actually far ahead of uh, far ahead of Australia in terms of addressing their racial issues or their issues around race and diversity. Um, and the only thing I can think of in terms of why it hasn't happened in, in Australia is that. There's, it's, it's incredibly difficult research to do, for starters, and without institutional support, it is so hard. Like, we've actually been working on this project for almost two years now, and it's been incredibly difficult to get it going. Um, there's pushback from a lot of areas, um, there's not a lot of support. Like, we've applied for grants, and it's just been shut down. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure why the UK and the US are doing so much better, but they are. They do have, you know, their publishers themselves over there are doing this research. Um, the, you know, people behind that, so like the Jellic Prize did this research. Mm-hmm. And in, um, you know what I mean? So I think it's just the institutions in Australia are just not ready uh, to, to kind of face up to their, to their problems. So, Hella, um, I'd love to dive into that a bit deeper about institutional support. So, you know, once we get this data and we see that there you know, aren't that many Indigenous writers being published, where do we go from here? How do we solve this problem? Uh, that's a big one. Um, oof. How do we solve the problem? You know what? I don't, I, I don't know that there will be a clear solution, but, I mean, we've already started kind of um, trying to solve it. So small presses like mine... Um, uh, there's the you know new festivals coming up, so things like the Boundless Diverse Writers Festival, the Black and Bright, um, the Black and Bright Writers Festival, um, a different yeah focus on national prizes. Um, so I think I think once we're able to in like statistic like use a statistic and say this is an actual area of like there is a gap here, we can create more of a program around <clears throat> sorry we can create more of a program around trying to fill that gap we can look at hiring practices in different institutions we can look at how like funding is being distributed and we can actually approach the people in the institutions we can approach the people behind all of this and say here is the evidence of an issue that you need to fix because right now honestly they don't believe there is an issue and this is the whole reason for doing this research because they just there is some kind of refusal to believe that there's anything wrong here. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking with us this morning, Hella. Um, 
That was Hella Ibrahim, Ibrahim, the founder and editorial director for Jed Press. And I think we got it right this time. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Hella. Uh, stay tuned because after this song, we are talking about the coalition's plans to scrap the Medivac bill, a bill passed to ensure the health and safety of all refugee and asylum seekers in Australia. And we're asking the question, what do you think about the election result? Were you surprised? Uh, we would love to hear from you. Text in on 0409-945-945. That's 0409-945-945. We're going to go to a song right now. This is More by Flying Lotus featuring Anderson Park from his new album, Flamagra. I think that's how you say it. Uh, so this is a bang of a song. So stay tuned for our segment after that. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. It was a shock to discover that the Liberal Party was re-elected last weekend, let alone winning a majority government and ousting popular independent candidate for Wentworth, Karen Phelps. Now the coalition have their sights set on a popular law she advocated for, designed to keep refugees and asylum seekers in offshore detention safe and well. The re-elected coalition government is pushing forward with plans to repeal the medical evacuation law amid a spike in suicide attempts and self-harm among offshore refugees and asylum seekers. To help us make sense of all of this, we're going to be talking to human rights campaigner for GetUp, Rene Drury. Hi, Rene. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, folks. No, our pleasure. So, just to start off, can you tell us a bit more about the Medivac law? Yeah, for sure. So, basically, it's a pathway for uh, sick men and women detained on Manus and Nauru to get the care that they need. Um, the whole premise of the bill is to make sure that doctors are having the say on whether people need the care, not bureaucrats and politicians. So kind of in the weeds, it's meaning that uh, when two independent doctors assess someone in offshore detention saying that they need that care, um, they kind of, it expedites that pathway, uh, meaning that it's easier for them to uh, be brought to Australia for treatment. Up until that point, um, before Medivac, it had been much more complicated and usually involved uh, getting lawyers involved and going to court to five people to get the care they needed in Australia. So it was really tricky and definitely took a lot longer and meant that treatment was often delayed. Uh, And when people are unwell, there just isn't that time. And how much do we know right now about the government's plan to scrap the law? At the moment, we're still kind of making sense of what it all means and how it will play out over the coming weeks. And I think um, similarly, GetUp is also looking at the election results and figuring out what this means for our campaigning work and what uh, specifically for Medivac. So we're still kind of figuring out within the broader sector as well of like how we're going to approach this and what this means moving forward. So it's a little bit unclear at this point how they're going to try and repeal it and what sort of uh, mechanisms they're going to use over the coming weeks. Um, yeah, what that will look like. So... <laughs> what I want to talk about sure. is, you know, they've just come into power, you know, they won on Saturday and I'm just, maybe for me personally, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that this is the first thing that they, <laughs> or one of the first things that they want to do is they came back into power and they're like, all right, we're repealing this law. I mean, do you have any insight into why this is a priority for them? For sure. I mean, I think uh, I was probably not super surprised. This was one of their top priority pieces. I mean, um, they lost a pretty historic vote on the House of the Floor of Representatives uh, on this particular bill, and now they're kind of being forced to implement a process that's fair and transparent and gives people the care that they need, uh, and they fought tooth and nail to prevent that. We saw at the end of last year in the Senate um, three hours of filibustering with uh, Cory Bernardi and Pauline Hanson to prevent the bill getting through the Senate the first first time around. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that this is uh, the thing they've come out really strongly on in this first week back kind of makes a bit of sense that, um, you know, it's one of their key policy areas is strong borders and 
the refugee policies they've kind of pinned uh, their government on for the last, you know, six years. Uh, and it makes sense they want to wind it back as quickly as possible. Yeah, and there's been uh, recent reports of uh, suicide attempts from refugees and asylum seekers. Um, uh, I guess, you know, since the election result, um, you know, what what do you think is uh, going on over there? Can you tell us what you know? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, we know that offshore detention um, is a health crisis generally, and we've known that for a really long time. And I think for the men and women on Manus and Nauru right now, they're seeing a government being re-elected that spent the last six years refusing to acknowledge whether they have a future and what they're, whether they'll be detained forever. Um, so I think the reaction that we're seeing on Manus and Nauru is just a sentiment to that feeling of desperate and hopelessness and what their lives will look like under a coalition government. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swata Das and Isabella Kwai. We're speaking to human rights campaigner for Get Up, Renee Drury, about the coalition government's push to repeal the Medivac laws amid a spike in suicide attempts and self-harm among offshore refugees and asylum seekers. You know, we're asking our listeners to text in and let us know what they think about the election result. Were they surprised by it? Um, you can text in on 0409-945-945. And we actually did get some text in. Um, the first one is from Daza from Newtown. And they said that the election was a disaster. <laughs> so, okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you for signing that up. Um, we also got another text, Isabella. Rachel from Redfern. Everyone I work with was super thrilled that the libs got in, and I'm just sitting there softly weeping. <laughs> well, I hope you um, found some support, Rachel, yeah. for how you're feeling. And, yeah, I, that yeah. happened to me. It was. Um, it's like a bit difficult to talk about the elections to get back to work because you just don't know how people vote. So you're mm. just like the elections, and you just like so everyone looks awkwardly at each you other. You suss them out, and they're like, "Oh, I campaigned for one nation." You're like, oh, "Okay, cool, 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 cool." Let's Quickly turns away. <laughs> yeah, you're like, uh, let's talk about this project. Um, yeah, so text in. Let us know what you think about the election. Oh four oh nine nine four five nine four five. Or let us know what you think about the Medivac bill, um, bill law being repealed. So. Back to the topic, Renee. Centre Alliance Senators and the Greens have said that they probably won't support repealing the law. Do you think it's likely the government will get away with what they're planning? I think it's going to be tough and it will definitely be a battle for them. And we saw, uh, you know, when they um, uh, tried to block the bill uh, at the end of last year and then the beginning of this year, that a really strong coalition of conscience formed in Parliament. Um, a lot of independents and key people like Centre Alliance and the Greens coming forward and kind of... Um, uh, talking about policy that was um, like a smart medical decision as well. So it made sense. Uh, so I think it's definitely going to be a tricky one. And I'll, we're going to, I have to, I guess, wait and see over the coming months about what that looks like. And something that's come up since the election result is that it seems, you know, we can often have an incorrect idea of how other Australians see politics. You know, there is a very um, wide political spectrum. So how much support do you think is out there for the law to be repealed? I mean, it was really uh, when the bill kind of came forward, there was a lot of public support. We had, you know, um, every medical college in Australia, the Australian, um, the AMA, sorry, um, 7,000 doctors across the country backing it in uh, and, you know, sort of public support from places that you wouldn't expect it, like, you know, celebrities like Sam Neill and the Wiggles and all of these other people coming forward and um, sort of saying that it made sense and it was the right thing to do. Um, so I think that sentiment will definitely carry through. Uh, it has such strong support the first time around, and the fact that we're seeing politicians coming out and saying that they would support it again is really positive. So we have heard that the government uh, is reopening Christmas Island. So I guess, could you tell us what that is about? And is it going to be used to um, house refugees offshore? Yeah. 
For sure. So they opened Christmas Island a little while ago um, as a response kind of to Medivac passing. Uh, we haven't seen anyone go through Christmas Island at this point. And also uh, it's a, an interesting contradiction of wanting to give people medical care um, when Christmas Island, um, it has been acknowledged by people that live on the island and also that there, there isn't the care needed there for people that have these acute medical needs. Um, so I think at this point we're kind of weighing up what that will look like, uh, but we think that people should be brought to Australia for the care that they need, they need as opposed to the Australian government kind of shirking their responsibilities. Um, And the coalition has also said that um, it'll close the Christmas Island Detention Centre where it spent millions on to reopen uh, if the uh, Medivac law is repealed. Um, What are your thoughts on that plan from the party? (laughs) Long sigh. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. for sure. Um, I mean... Our thought is that like the government needs to be responsible here. They've imprisoned people on Manus and Nauru for years, and these people need medical treatment, and that needs to happen in Australia. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, they could be bringing people to Australia much quicker than the Medivac process, um, and they're refusing. And I think you know we have a team of lawyers that are part of the Medivac response unit working really hard um, to process all of these caseloads. But essentially, the Australian government could act now to bring these people to safety. So, um, just to wrap up. If our listeners are passionate about this topic, how could they help? So there's a bunch of different ways to get involved. There are different organisations like the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre that are doing great work. Um, I think jump online, have a look and see what sort of frontline services are providing support in your local area uh, and get involved. Um, You know, over the next coming weeks and months, we're going to be pushing really hard to make sure it uh, stays. So um, jump online, get involved through any platform that you can, basically. Well, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. That was Rene Drury speaking to us about the repeal of the Medivac law as a human rights campaigner for Get Up. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Well, that's all we have for today's show. Isabella, how can our listeners stay up to date with what's happening in Australia? funny that you ask. (laughs) Well, I actually write a weekly newsletter for the New York Times where uh, I and other reporters in the Bureau talk about all things Australia, what we're thinking about, what we're interested in. So if you want to keep up with our coverage, um, you know, sign up and uh, get to know me better, basically. So you just sign up online? Yeah. If you, uh, best way to do it is Google NYT Australia newsletter and uh, you can just sign up at the link there. Awesome. We'll uh, also tweet that out. Thank and you so much. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, Isabella, huge thank you to you for coming here and guest hosting with me. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. We oh, love New York you. Times royalty on Backchat. <laughs> We're moving uh, up in the world. You may call me Queen Bella <laughs> if you really want We're to. We're going to see you on Game of Thrones soon. <laughs> um, also, a huge thank you to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sikolovska, and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Hella Ibrahim and Renee Drury. Uh, we're going to catch you all next week. Actually, this is a song that you recommended. Do you want to introduce it? Yeah. So uh, this is a song that I recently discovered this week. And uh, if you're getting, you know, some Rufus dissolve withdrawal vibes, <laughs> I think you should check it out. It's called All I Want by Abroad. Oh,